Good morning. I want to add my welcome to you as well. I was just thinking as Logan was welcoming visitors, um, we do that every week, and if you're here every week, it might just kind of fade into the background noise of the familiar, but sitting there thinking just what a, what a joy and an encouragement, how much love we do feel. If you're here for the first time, if you're just visiting, if you're with family and you're in town, we're just so honored by your presence. Um, anybody who would gather together with other believers to worship the risen Jesus, um, whether you know him or you're just here and you're, you're hearing an unfamiliar message, the fact that you're here is such a joy to the people of Emmaus Road Church. And so on behalf of the church, the members of Emmaus Road, that, that's why we give that welcome every week. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 10. Do you know how to kill a church? I mean, not that you want to, I trust. Um, But because I trust that you don't have any intention to disrupt or derail a church... It's probably not the kind of thing you give much thought to, and so you may not realize how easy it is, how little it, it takes. And just like the human body, the physical body is actually a pretty fragile thing, most of us, you know, we just take it for granted that we're alive and we live day after day, and, and then there can be moments where we're suddenly reminded how fragile we really are. We've got these few vital organs. Their functions are essential to life. And it just doesn't take much at all. When Paul was confronting false teaching in the church in Galatia, he he said this, Galatians 5, 7, to the the Christians in Galatia, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Somebody cut in and hindered you from obeying the truth. And then he says this, listen, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The one? Like there's one rogue person in the church who cut in and hindered the entire church who was running well. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. All it took was one troublemaker to trip up the church in Galatia. Remember, if you were here when we did that sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 9, 18, one sinner destroys much good, and a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Meaning, what takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of planning and a lot of intentionality and a lot of effort to build, we have a toddler, so I stack up this great tower architectural masterpiece, and just one whack. It takes no skill at all to knock it down. That's what we're going to see in the text in 1 Timothy this morning, specifically in the area of masculinity and femininity, which happen to be under, if you haven't noticed, remarkable attack in our culture today. All it takes is one or two rogue men or women to derail and distract the church. And of course, our purpose for looking at this text is to understand by God's grace not how to derail the church, but how to build up, how to edify the household of God. 
And it's my hope that as we walk through this text, you'll see how fundamentally important to the health of the church your everyday life is as a man or a woman in the image of God. It matters. It all contributes to the health of the church. It's incredibly important. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able out of our reverence and high regard for God's word. There's no book like this. And so we read it, we want to read it in the way that is pleasing to God with humility and trembling. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we receive every word that you have spoken to us. We receive it by faith and in humility we submit to you. So help us to understand what you're saying. Help us to faithfully apply it because we trust you. We just want to submit our minds and our thoughts and our opinions and our preferences to you. You speak to us here about everyday masculinity and femininity in ways that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, don't want to hear, but we want to hear from you because we love you, and we know that you speak to us because you love us, and you are redeeming for yourself a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works, and so accomplish your purpose through your word and by your spirit this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. So in these three short verses, Paul is addressing gender-specific, if you didn't catch it, gender-specific disruptions to corporate worship in the church in Ephesus. Back in verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, Paul urged, first of all, as a matter of first importance, that prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgiving be made. So Greg preached last week on the priority of prayer in the church, and he picks up and continues that theme here in verse 8 when he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. And Paul's not just talking about personal devotional prayer in secret. Certainly what he says here would apply to that, but specifically he's talking about praying in community, praying when other believers are gathered together in corporate worship. When the church is gathered in the name of Jesus, the church is gathered in worship, the church is gathered in prayer, and the theme of this entire letter, we saw in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, I'm, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul has instructions for the church, the household of God, and in verses 8 through 10, it seems like Paul is addressing a particular area of concern in Ephesus at this time, namely that there were some men and some women who were causing distractions when the church was gathered. 
and they were derailing this worship in the church, the purpose of the church's gathering. A little yeast works its way through the whole dough. And they were doing it in pretty characteristically, stereotypically male and female ways. Before we get into the details, I think it's important to acknowledge something. Um, Perhaps there was a time when it went without saying that men and women are different, but today, remarkably, it's controversial and it's offensive and it's sexist to point it out, so let me just say it in no uncertain terms. Men and women are different, and our differences are deeper than our anatomy. Look at how Paul addresses believers in Ephesus. He addresses the men singles them out in verse 8. And then he turns his attention in verse 9 to, likewise, also the women. And those Greek words are gender-specific. They're, they're biological. He's talking about biological males and biological females, but he's differentiating. He's discriminating, so to speak, between the two in order to give gender-specific instructions. In verse 13, which we'll get into Next week, Paul grounds those differences between men and women all the way back in the order of creation when he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he's saying, any astute reader of Scripture is going to notice the way that God made us was different. Adam is formed out of the dust of the ground, from the dust brought back to the dirt to work and keep the dirt. Eve is formed out of the side of man, not out of the dirt like Adam, but out of Man, and not brought to the dirt, but brought to Adam as a helper to him. So in our creation, we're different. There are differences. And in the sin, the fall, there are differences. And in the curse that God pronounced over Adam and Eve after the fall, there are differences. Men were cursed in particular in their work, that they would work and keep the ground, but this time with blisters, with thorns and thistles coming up out of the ground. When God gives the curse to Eve... It's in the realm of childbearing and conflict in her marriage. God differentiates and distinguishes. And in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, Scripture is indicating to us that men and women are prone to different sins. Paul addresses male aggression here and female vanity. I think one of the most annoying things to those who argue that all gender distinctions are culturally conditioned, just a product of culture made up by society, it's got to be annoying to them the fact that there are these stereotypical sins that persist in all cultures, in all time periods, in all places. Why does that keep happening if it's all just cultural? Why do we keep finding those particular distortions of masculinity and femininity all around the world at any time period? So, of course, when Paul's addressing male aggression and female vanity, it doesn't mean that women never sin in violent or aggressive ways. And it doesn't mean that men are never vain. But generalizations are just that. They're generalizations, and they can be true as general rules. And so Paul first addresses the men. I desire then, verse 8, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Apparently there were some men in the church in Ephesus who were disrupting worship with these aggressive and combative attitudes. They brought that into the gathering, the corporate gathering of the church, and so they were themselves distracted by rivalry and competition, and they had become a distraction to others. 
And by disrupting and distracting, I don't mean like the kind of distraction, you know, if a baby cries out in church. It may be a minor distraction. It's nothing serious. It's certainly not sinful. But sinful anger and quarreling, like Paul is warning against here, can actually derail people from faith and distract the church from its mission of worshiping God and proclaiming the gospel. Some of the quarreling probably had to do with the men that Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 7, men who desired to be teachers of the law and didn't have a clue what they were talking about. So that desire did not come from any kind of humble uh, love for the church and desire to build up and edify the church. It came out of selfish ambition grasping at something that they viewed as a position of power and influence and authority. They wanted that out of rivalry and competition. And Paul says about those men back in chapter 1, verse 6, that some of them had already wandered away, wandered away into vain discussion. In chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Paul warns against any man who is, listen to these words, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce, this is not a harmless thing, listen, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. That sounds ugly, doesn't it? And and here's how destructive it is. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul's going to say this. 2 Timothy 2.14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Apparently, the problem is still persisting in Ephesus when he writes 2 Timothy. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Ruins the hearers. This is incredibly damaging to the household of God. It's not that the word of God can be hindered. When Paul is in prison, he's chained up, he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, it's not as though the word of God is hindered. Nobody can hinder God's gospel from going forth in the world despite all of their best efforts. It's not that anyone can actually in the end succeed in destroying or killing a church, but people can do real damage to churches. That's true. Remember the end of chapter 1? Paul mentioned Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he said, I handed them over to Satan. They might learn not to blaspheme. He mentions Alexander again in 2 Timothy. Might be a different Alexander. Might be the same one. Either way, 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. This is a serious thing. In Acts 20, Paul's last face-to-face interaction with the elders in the church in Ephesus He calls them out. He meets with them. He knows he's never going to see them again. Ephesus, remember, is where Timothy is serving here in this letter. When Paul has his last face-to-face encounter with the elders in Ephesus, listen to his words, Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise Men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. My my aim here is just to show you how, what a big deal this is. How damaging and destructive it can be to a church when sinful men go unchecked in their 
aggression and their quarreling and their rivalry and their competition and their anger. But men aren't the only ones who can damage a church. We live in a day and age when, uh, again, this is an offensive thing to say. We hear repeated the, the line, believe all women. And so modern feminism sets it up like men are always the problem and women are always innocent. And the Bible is, I mean, painfully, brutally honest about the ugliness of male sin, certainly. It's just honest about sins of both sexes. It doesn't discriminate. Men and women are capable of sinning, and their sin is capable of doing great harm and damage. Verse 9, Paul says, Likewise also I desire that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So, apparently, in addition to some of these men who are bringing their competitive spirit into corporate worship, there were some women in the Ephesian church who were treating corporate worship like it was Paris Fashion Week. And so they saw this as an opportunity to deck themselves out, probably, commentators agree, this probably has a broad application. It may be sensuous and seductive in some cases. It just might be gaudy and ostentatious and overly expensive and ornate in other cases, it might be a combination of both. Either way, in the way that they dressed, the way that they presented themselves, they were disrupting the church. And they were doing it with clothes and with jewelry and with hairstyles. Again, this kind of disruption, this kind of distraction, is, it's more serious than not being able to see the words on the screen because somebody's you know, beehive hairdo is in your way. Not that kind of distraction. It is the outward symptom. Doctors look for symptoms. Tell them some underlying condition. It is symptomatic. It's the outward expression of a deadly serious heart condition. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, Paul mentions some young women in the church whose passions draw them away from Christ. That's what's at stake here. Their passions Draw them away from Christ. Instead of growing and maturing in gospel doctrine and maturity, Paul says that these young women were learning to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And then listen to this, verse 15. For some of these young women have already strayed after Satan. That just, like, escalates the severity of all of this. This is not harmless. It's not innocent. It's not cute. It's like cancer to the body of Christ. Here's the point that I want you to see. Distortions of masculinity and femininity, like aggression or immodesty, distortions of masculinity and femininity disrupt the order of, that God means to characterize his household under the economy of God, God's way of ordering and arranging all things. There's a way believers redeemed by God's grace through Jesus Christ are meant to live their lives. And disruptions, distortions of that disrupt the church. One commentator says it like this, it takes only a few strategically positioned angry men or glamour-obsessed women 
to set an unhealthy tone for a much larger group. If men may imperil that integrity by misplaced zeal, women may do so by undue attention to how they look. But here's the flip side of that. Every individual member of the household of God, male and female, plays a vital role in maintaining and contributing to and building up the church's unswerving allegiance to Jesus. In your everyday life as a man or as a woman, how you live there, redeemed in Christ, contributes to, builds up the health of the church. This just elevates for us the significance of every member of the body of Christ and how you live your life in all of life, not just on Sunday mornings. You play a vital role. You either contribute to the health and the strength and the unity of the church or you undermine it. So if you come into corporate worship and you're primarily concerned about yourself, your appearance, your reputation, your preferences, you disrupt the church. Your envy, rivalry, slander, suspicion, there's no place for that. That ends up undermining undermining the mission and purpose of the church in worship and distracting other people from Jesus. But the flip side of that is that when you hold unswervingly to Jesus, you protect the gospel, you preserve the gospel with humility, what we call humble orthodoxy. When you cultivate everyday godliness, you start to think through, what does that look like for what I do with my hands. Paul's talking about men and what they do with their hands. When you start to think through, what does that have to do with my clothing and my hair and my jewelry? And you cultivate this everyday godliness, godliness in the the trifles, the mundane, the ordinary stuff. You strengthen the church. You build people up in Christ. So you play a role. And you play a gendered role in the household of God. Your masculinity as a man matters. Your femininity as a woman matters. We shouldn't be surprised that men and women face these particular stereotypical distortions. That's exactly what they are. They're distortions of God's created order. Think about it. If Adam was made to rule and have dominion, take that masculinity, stick it in front of the funhouse mirror of sin, what kind of distortion would you get? If dominion is distorted, you get dominance, Aggression, violence, that's a particular, it's not the only distortion, but it's one of them. And if women were made as the glory, the crown of creation, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. We don't take that to mean woman is a lesser glory than man is. We take that to mean a higher glory. If man is the glory and woman is the glory of the glory, that's a greater glory. And it's just, you, everybody knows that right off the, that, that's why husbands speak of their wives as their better half. Now, wives don't speak of their husbands that way. The, the, the wife glorifies the husband. She's like the crown, he's the head, she's the crown on top of the head, who beautifies and glorifies and compliments. So you take that, stick it in front of a funhouse mirror of sin, what kind of distortion do you get? Vanity and immodesty. Makes sense, right? So we shouldn't be surprised. And when God saves men and women, this is, this is what he's doing in his household, holding out 
truth of the gospel to the world. When God saves men and women and brings them into his household where he orders and he arranges everything according to his economy, he redeems us to the core. He redeems masculinity. He redeems femininity. So how does that happen? What does that look like? That's where I want to spend the rest of the time that we have. First, God changes you. God changes you as a man or a woman from the inside out. It's always inside out. Redeemed masculinity, redeemed femininity come from being in right relationship with God. It's not, first, if I just learn the dress code and then keep that, that will change me on the inside. No, external behavior, things like dress, things like what men do with their hands, whether they're lifting them in prayer or in clenched fists, that flows out of the heart. When Paul talks about men, what they're doing, fighting or praying, when he talks about women and what they're doing with their clothes and hair, he's pressing what we would call the implications of the gospel into all the edges of our lives. He's working out the implications of the gospel. He's not talking about the gospel itself. The gospel itself, we see clearly a few verses earlier, verses five and six in chapter two, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the gospel. Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, male and female. But now Paul's moving into implications of the gospel. What Jesus' death, what his ransom for all means for your conduct, for your competition, for your coiffure, your hairstyle. Gospel fluency means thinking and speaking and learning to interpret all of life, every aspect of life in terms of the gospel. Gospel fluency. What, what does the death of Jesus have to do with sinful male aggression? When Paul urges men to pray, lifting holy hands, he's not just calling for some behavior modification, some empty religious posturing. That would be pointless. He's pointing men to the only source of change, humble submission to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belongs glory and honor forever and ever. And how does anyone... Anyone come into communion with that God in prayer? It's through the man, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. So every man then approaches God the Father through this mediator, Jesus. His death is central. And listen to the way Paul describes the effect of the gospel then on relationships in Philippians 2 verse 3 where he urges Christians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that's an outworking of the gospel because a few verses later, Paul says, verse eight, Jesus humbly, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You, you spend any time looking at that savior that death on the cross for you, that changes things. That changes how you live and how you relate to people. Likewise, when he appeals to women, he's not calling for mere external conformity, behavior modification, to a, you know, conformity to a dress code. He, he's calling for a heart disposition that will express itself outwardly, but no dress code can produce that heart. It doesn't work outside in. It works inside out. So, in verse 10, notice 
how he appeals to women based on their profession of godliness. Women should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness. He's assuming something already about these women, namely that they pledge allegiance to Jesus. The word profess there can also be translated promise. It's this idea of a public pledge. They have pledged allegiance to Jesus, and so he's appealing to that based on that allegiance, that trust in Jesus. Work that out in your external appearance. When he's talking about modesty and self-control, he's talking about the heart condition. One author says, as this text makes plain, Paul is looking for a modest demeanor. This demeanor, this heart, this spirit is the heart and soul of true modesty. If the heart attitude is not there, then all the dress codes in the world will fix nothing. So God changes you from the inside out. And then he actually changes you. You're not the same. And the way God changes everyone, male and female, in Christ, always involves putting off and putting on. That's the biblical pattern of change that we see all over the place. Putting off, putting on. Listen to Ephesians 4, Paul says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, and the word put off... It's actually like a clothing term, like taking off the clothing, the outfit you were wearing, and put on, get dressed in the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He talks that way in Colossians 3. He talks that way in Romans 6. Wherever Paul is dealing with biblical change, if you want to know how to, if there's an area of your life you, you want to know, how, how do I change? God always works out this way. There's some sin to put off and turn away from in repentance, and there's some truth to turn to in faith. There are new patterns, new habits, new ways of living that come from the obedience of faith. And, and you have to have both. You don't try to keep the old habits and put the new ones on because the old ones are corrupt because of sin. You don't just put off the sin and then sit there in neutral, doing nothing, going nowhere, not learning anything new, you replace the old with the new. Put off and put on. Repent and believe. And so, he says to the men, pray by lifting holy hands. That's putting on. But put off anger and quarreling. He says to the women, adorn yourselves. Adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control and with good works. That's the put on. But the put off is immodesty, which he lists here as braided hair and gold and pearls. So I want to walk through each of those a little bit more detail, singling out the men first and then the women. He calls men to put off, I think broadly, anything associated with the former self, the old man, corrupted by sin. In particular here, he's talking about aggression and rivalry. And the word for anger is not just a feeling, but the expression of the feeling of anger, the outburst, the the outward uh, gestures that come from anger. And sins are like Grapes, somebody has said, they come in clusters, in bunches. So that same word for anger, it shows up in bunches of sins in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 with words like bitterness, malice, wrath, obscene talk. Can I get the picture, right? You know what he's describing here. So men, when and where are you most susceptible to expressing unrighteous anger? in sinful ways? Is your driving marked by road rage? I notice this in myself, that for some reason, 
any car that passes me, I have this, I feel like we're in a race. Why did like ugly stuff starts to come up into my heart and then I look over and I realize that person's not racing me. Why did I think they were racing me? Do you lash out at your wife or your kids in sinful ways? Does your enjoyment of sports escalate to ugly outbursts of anger? Sports are awesome. And if you want to see some ugly outbursts, you've seen those videos of people like their team loses and they just throw something straight through the TV screen. <laughs> wow, that's an area. Are you bitter toward a, a rival at work who threatens your own ambitions and promotions? Do you harbor some ill will toward a neighbor? There's a commentator who says, given the missionary edge of gospel Christianity and the opposition to which it typically gives rise, there's probably no place or time where this directive does not bear repeating. Angry men, passionate about being right, are a primary threat to acceptable worship as well as the broader witness of the church. So Paul calls men to put that off and to put on in its place passionate prayer that comes from a life of integrity. It says, pray lifting holy hands. Lifted hands is a common posture of prayer we see all throughout Scripture. It's a posture that expresses physically, outwardly, visibly, the humility and the dependence that we express with our words. In prayer, Lamentations 341, let us lift up our hearts and hands. So we should expect to express our worship physically in our postures. Lift up holy hands. But Paul's point goes deeper than posture. It's not just the lifted hands. It's the holy hands that he's calling for. Holy hands. Hands that are clean and undefiled. Where does that come from? That's a gift of God by God's mercy. Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, a persecutor. He didn't have holy hands. He received that as a gift of God's mercy. But do you see what he does here? He connects your everyday life with your worship. You can't segregate the two, the same hands you lift in worship. What else did you do with those hands this week? Who did you give a knuckle sandwich to this week? He connects everyday life with your worship. He says, put on passionate prayer. And then he addresses the women. What exactly is he talking about when he denounces braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. An innocent, immediate question like, well, what about a little girl with pigtails or a braid? I mean, is, is, that, is that wrong? Is that sinful? It's not that any of those things in and of itself is inherently wrong. And I, I say that because in a place like Ezekiel 16, God describes his own salvation of Israel in terms of coming across her, speaks of it as this marriage relationship. He found her, he washed her, he cleansed her, he dressed her up ornately, and God himself describes putting on Israel fine linen and silk, ornaments, bracelets, necklace, earrings, nose ring, beautiful crown, gold, and silver. If God puts that on his bride, it must not be wrong. And then he says in verse 14, And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord your God. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. 15. He says, nature itself teaches you that a woman has long hair as her glory. So God's not against beauty. That's not the thing. But like all good gifts, clothing and jewelry and hairstyles can be misused. They can be used to communicate sinful 
things. Listen to this scathing judgment from God addressed to the women of Judah in Isaiah 3. Just, Just hang on. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. This this is so crucial to get. Sin comes out in specifics. The way you walk can be an expression of a sinful heart. They walk a certain way. Their haughtiness is not just a spirit condition. It comes out in the way they walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes. There are looks they give that are expressions of sin. Mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the, arm, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. <laughs> Evidently, that's not a, a new recent thing like with the invention of the modern mall. It's been around a while. What's wrong with handbags? Nothing. Until sinful hearts get a hold of them and use them in sinful ways. If a monument is vandalized with red spray paint, like Plymouth Rock recently was, we'd be foolish to think the problem was red spray paint. The problem is the vandals' disrespect for true beauty. Red spray paint's not the problem. The vandals' disrespect and lack of art appreciation is the problem. So Paul calls women to put off everything associated with their former way of life, fallen, corrupted, femininity, and instead to put on respectable attire and good works. Do you notice there's actually a positive command here? The command is, likewise also, I desire that women adorn themselves. Adorn yourselves. The the word translated adorn is cosmeto. It means to order, to decorate, to make neat. It's where we get the word cosmetics. So the question is not whether women are going to adorn themselves. The question is, How? How? Anyone who thinks that Christian teaching on modesty means that women should look frumpy or drab or homely just has not been paying attention to the story of God in all of Scripture. Paul calls Christian women to adorn themselves in a particular way, in respectable apparel. And there's actually a wordplay going on here. Respectable translates the word cosmios. To adorn yourself translates the word cosmeto. So those two words come from the same family, same word group. In other words, in English, closest we could say is something like decorate yourselves decorously or beautify yourselves beautifully or ornament yourselves ornately, meaning not all ways of getting dressed up are actually communicating that kind of respect and honor that you ought to be communicating as women redeemed by God's grace in Christ. The idea is that women are to adorn themselves in ways consistent with who they are in Jesus. And that's true for every Christian woman in every culture at every time. One big objection to this text is, well, braided hair and gold, and obviously it's cultural, therefore people just quickly throw out the whole passage. It's just cultural, it has nothing to do with us today. But did you catch in verse 8, Paul said, 
this is my desire for men everywhere, in every place. This is instruction for churches everywhere, all Christian men and all Christian women. So, so here's the key you have to get. Clothing and hair and jewelry, those things all speak. They carry meaning. So are there cultural differences? Yes. In the same way that English differs from Spanish and differs from French and Chinese. Okay? So if Paul gives a command in the New Testament, let no obscene talk come out of your mouth. And as you're walking out, you hear some person say F you to somebody. You approach them and they say, hey, Paul didn't say I couldn't say that word. It's just a sound. It doesn't, what does it mean? Meaning is all relative. It's just cultural. He said, let no obscene talk come out of your mouth. You figure out what that means in English. You speak English. You know what that is, right? When he says, adorn yourselves in respectable attire, and you say, well, he didn't say anything about this item of clothing or this thing that was invented long after Paul died. He, doesn't, he didn't need to. You figure it out. You live in the culture. You know that it all means something. It communicates. It expresses meaning. And so you can take clothing and jewelry and you can express sensuality or ostentatious attitudes of pride or you can express decorum and modesty. But Paul doesn't say how short is too short or how tight is too tight or how low is too low or how expensive is too expensive or... But we believe the word of God is sufficient, which means God doesn't have to give us those details for us to use our brains to figure it out. In fact, the word, when when Paul calls women here to adorn themselves with modesty and self-control, that word self-control actually means something more like reasonable, rational. So when when Paul is on trial before a king, this king says, Paul, you're losing your mind. You're, you're, You're crazy. And Paul says, no, I'm speaking rational and true words. He uses the same word translated self-control here. Paul Paul means Christian women, use your mind, use your intelligence in how you dress yourselves. That's what Christian women do. Your goal is never to communicate trendy or flashy or edgy or sexy. The goal is always to communicate dignity and honor as women redeemed by Christ. One author says the contrast between Christian women and unbelieving women does not consist of the former not caring about beauty, Christian women not caring about beauty, and the latter caring very much. The difference is between caring about beauty as wise women who actually understand what true beauty is because you have the Spirit of God living in you and you have the Word of God enlightening you or caring about it as foolish women. So the beauty of Christian women is actually far beyond the beauty of the world. How how could they know what real beauty is without God's word and his spirit? It's deeper than clothes, though. Paul calls for godliness. And the words he uses for to adorn and attire, they they actually can mean both the clothing and your your character, your your behavior. So he, he keeps moving back and forth between actual clothing and jewelry you wear and your life, your character. And he calls women to put on good works. That gets spelled out more in chapter 5 when he's dealing with older women who qualify for support from the church. He says those, the women who qualify are women who have a reputation for good works. Just listen to a few of the particularly feminine good works he points out. This is 1 Timothy 5.10. Women who have a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. I just want you to see that that elevates 
motherhood, service, hospitality, that is meaningful and it contributes to the building up of the body of Christ, the household of God. So, when men and women grow in orthodoxy and gospel fluency, God produces this kind of everyday godliness. And it comes out our fingertips. It comes out in the clothing that we wear and how we present ourselves. It comes out in the mundane and the ordinary and the basic stuff of life. And it's connected to what happens when we gather corporately to worship like this. And all of it is communicating to the world, Jesus is king over everything. He's king over everything. I think there's an attitude that says, well, Jesus is king of my spiritual life. But when it comes to my clothing, my preferences, that, that's And just walk through the mall. Every advertisement says some form of express your true self. Of course, you need their product to do that. You don't have your true self inside of you. You have to buy their product, get their piercing, whatever, to express your true self. We're saying Jesus is king over everything, which means he has authority over what we wear, what we do with our hands, what we watch, the jokes that we find funny and repeat. He, He rules all of it. So I encourage you then in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he gave himself for you to ransom you, ask ask yourself, is there anything about my attitude, my disposition toward others that, that could be distracting or dangerous to the church? Is there any way that that I might detract from church's unswerving allegiance to Jesus? Is my aim to exalt Jesus to, to draw attention to myself? I, I'm thankful. I was telling Logan this morning, this is a text preaching this. I don't come in here thinking like, oh, we've, this is really hitting a problem we've got here. We've got a church full of mature people who express that in incredible ways. But I, I know sin lurks down in all of us. We, we, have, we fight the fight of faith against those attitudes within us. And so it's good to be called again to realize God is redeeming us to the core through Christ. And when ordinary men and women submit ordinary life to the rule and reign of Jesus as members of God's household, God manifests his wisdom, his beauty, the beauty of his economy to the world, his way of ordering and arranging everything. And that's how the church is built up as a pillar and buttress of truth that's holding out the hope of the gospel to a world that's incredibly confused about all of this. And we're part of that together can't think of any, anything more exciting to be part of in the world today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you actually change men and women. You make it possible for us to put off the old and to put on the new because Jesus died In our place, in our place, condemned he stood. Would you produce in us greater and greater wisdom and discretion and maturity and character and godliness that would just come from the inside out, first from hearts that love Jesus, treasure Jesus, and are looking for every possible way to express that outwardly in our demeanor, in our speech, in our conduct, in our attire, because we have no greater treasure than you, Lord Jesus. We love you.
Amen. It's our practice on the first Sunday of the month to come to the, the Lord's table, to celebrate communion together. We're going to do that this morning. And, and this is where we find hope. As fallen men and women, corrupted through sin, we come and we partake of the table. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. He took on humanity. He is the image of the invisible God. And then he became a man with flesh and blood to redeem flesh and blood men and women into his likeness. And so now, that's what he's doing. He is conforming you to his image from one degree of glory to the next. He is redeeming you all the way to the core, not just part of you, not just your mind, not just your emotions, not just your body, all of it, all of you. And the proof of that is that he gave himself, all of himself in flesh. So when you take the bread and you take the cup, ponder his death for you in the flesh and the fact that by dying in the flesh, he redeems you and your flesh, your masculinity, your femininity for his glory. Jesus gave himself for you. And so the way we do this, I invite you to come down the middle to one of these two stations on either side. You can take those elements and partake on your own or with others. You can return to your seat uh, or gather up with others and, and pray. But the whole point when we come to the table is to proclaim the Lord's death, to remember his death, to meditate on and rejoice in the fact that Jesus gave himself for you. There's a gluten-free option if you need that, and we invite you to come and welcome to Jesus.